0: Shall we turn now to 1 Chronicles chapter 1 and let's see what, you know, we used to say to our kids they could get juice out of anything uh, when they ate, you know, they, they could make a cracker so juicy that when they were through it was all over the place, but uh, we'll pray that the Holy Spirit will help us to draw some juice out of 1 uh, Chronicles and uh, the Listing of all of these genealogies. Now, the list begins where it should, of course, with Adam. And then his sons, Seth and Enosh, and gives the names of the sons, uh, the descendants, down to Japheth, who was one of Noah's sons. And then it, it's interesting, as you watch it, it will take off and, and give you just a few uh, descendants of Japheth, and it drops Japheth. It'll give you a few descendants of Ham, but it's going to drop Ham, and then it uh, centers in on the descendants of Seth, uh, because it is from the descendants of Seth that Abraham came from Abraham, Whom David came from David who Christ came and that's the genealogy really that uh, the scripture is interested in in really following and so uh, we get a few of the sons of Japheth and as we read the names of the sons of Japheth immediately we're aware of the fact that the descendants of Japheth were actually the Europeans and and the Russians Uh, and so Gomer Magog and and so forth uh, those that went north and west were the descendants of Japheth. As we read the descendants of Ham, beginning with verse 8, we realize that they are those who went south from Israel down into the African continent and they populated the area of the African continent and so that leaves Shem uh, with the uh, the children of Israel and those towards the east from Israel. Now, in verse 19 of chapter 1, it mentions this fellow uh, Peleg. And it was in his days that the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Now, just what is meant by the earth is divided uh, is a matter of speculation. It could be that it is a reference to uh, the time of the Tower of Babel when the people were separated and went out uh, from there uh, with the confusion of tongues and and really the beginning of uh, nationality groups. Or there are some who believe that this is a reference to some great cataclysmic event in which the continents were divided. Uh, They are talking now of the continental drifts and that the possibility at one time uh, they were all together. And uh, so, uh, if that indeed be so, who knows? But uh, an interesting phrase at least. Now, we... Uh, take in verse 24 to 28, you have a direct line now from Shem to Abraham. And uh, as we read these in uh, the book of Genesis, we find that Abraham actually was still alive or was born when Shem was still alive. And then we move uh, to... Uh, Ishmael's sons in verse 29 uh, and then of course to uh, the sons of Abraham uh, by Keturah, his concubine. And then uh, we come to Isaac and Esau and Israel in verse 34. Then we follow for a little while the sons of Esau who became the Edomites. And then when we get into chapter 2, we take Esau's twin brother Jacob. Now these are the sons of Israel and the 12 sons of Jacob. And then we follow for a little bit the sons uh, of Judah. And then we are now zeroing in. As I tell you, we, we keep coming back, zeroing in on the line of Christ and as we get to Judah, because the Messiah was to come out of Judah, uh, we uh, find the, the descendants from Judah to Jesse. He was to be a root out of the stem of Jesse. And so that's the family we're interested in. And then from De- Jesse, of course, uh, we want David, who was the uh, seventh son of Jesse. His brothers are all named in verses 13 through 15. Now, you remember, as we were going through Kings, that David had a general who gave him problems. He was a mighty man. His name was Joab. And uh, yet, Joab did create problems for David, along uh, with his brother Abishai. And... uh, They actually were David's nephews. They were uh, the uh, sons of David's sister. Now we jump way back from David. We've come out to David, but we have left a lot of... uh, unnamed people and so we go to another family in the tribe of Judah the family of Caleb he was the one who was a spy with Joshua that brought back the good report and uh, the rest of the chapter deals with the descendants of Caleb you're dealing still with the uh, family of Judah now we center in on chapter 3 on David's family and it lists all of the children that were born of David in Hebron there in chapter 3 later we'll get a further list of his children that were born in Jerusalem well in verse 5 uh deals with those that were born in Jerusalem the others were born in Hebron before he was brought to Jerusalem and placed on the throne. And then we get a direct line of David's descendants down to the carrying away into captivity beginning with verse 10. Uh, They just list in order the descendants, uh, one following another, to follow the line from David to Zedekiah, the last king, the king that was carried away captive to Babylon at the end of the dynasty of David. In chapter 4, we follow another line from Caleb through one of his sons called Hur. Uh, And uh, you get a different line of Caleb from that which was earlier given. Now in this particular line in verse 9, As we've been listing a lot of names, suddenly he uh, pauses on one fellow uh, who stands out. Now, in all of these names, suddenly you get a man and he stands out. And why does one stand out above the other? Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, because I bore him with sorrow. Now, the word Jabez means sorrow, and just why... A parent would tag a name like that upon a child, I really don't know. Uh, It is a rather, to me, unfortunate name uh, to place upon a child. It would seem to me that it could cause some psychic problems. She bore him with sorrow, whether or not it was a difficult pregnancy or whether or not some uh, deformity existed in the child when he was born that created sorrow. It could be that he was blind. It could be that uh, he was impaired some way physically. And, and so rather than the great joy of having a son because of a physical impairment, uh, it, it would create sorrow. And she said, oh, Jabez, you know, oh, sorrow. And, and so they named him sorrow for whatever cause or reason. But that is uh, the name isn't the thing that makes him outstanding. It's his character that makes him outstanding. And Jabez called upon the God of Israel. He was outstanding because he was a man of prayer. There are far too few men of prayer. And yet the men of prayer are the men who really do accomplish things for the glory of God. There is a book called Power Through Prayer that I would like to recommend for excellent reading by E.M. Bounds. Andrew Murray has also written a beautiful book on prayer. There is a biography of Hyde. It's called Praying Hyde. Whenever I read uh, of these men of prayer, I long in my heart to be a man of prayer. I really don't consider myself a man of prayer. I know that I don't pray enough. These men of prayer, these men that were capable of spending Hours in prayer. Praying Hyde would pray up to eight hours a day. Now that I call a man of prayer. And the things that were wrought for God. You know, we think, well, we got to be out there, you know, hustling for the Lord. And we find ourselves always so deeply involved in activities for God. As though we can accomplish so much by our activities. But I am convinced that we can accomplish more for God through prayer than any of our efforts. That we get involved in, especially if those efforts are not backed by prayer. Now you say, well, if you're not a man of prayer, then how come the Lord has done so much through your ministry? Because I've got so many people praying for me. And I appreciate your prayers. And the work that is wrought here is wrought as a result of prayer. God has blessed the ministry of Calvary Chapel because of prayer. And years ago, when we were just 25 people, I said to them, all right now, because... It is interesting, we made a survey in the summer camp that I was conducting one time. We we sought to sort of get the spiritual tenor of the children, you know. And uh, how often do you read your Bible and how often do you pray? And on that little question, most of them put three times a day. And immediately, of course, we figured out for breakfast, lunch and dinner. And realizing that people usually pray for their breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we suggested that they put a little sort of a postscript on their breakfast, lunch, and dinner prayers. As they asked the Lord to bless the food and give thanks for the food, we told them to put a little addition to their prayer and Lord please bless Calvary Chapel. And 14 and a half years ago, we began praying, and Lord, please bless Calvary Chapel. And he has. Now, of course, I think that one of the great sources of power in the church, and this is the thing that the people who come to analyze and to study and, and to find, you know, the program and so forth. This is the thing that they never see, nor do they take into consideration. And that is the place of prayer in the ministry of Calvary Chapel. You see, they don't come all night and see the light on in the prayer room and realize that there are men there in the prayer room praying all night unto the Lord uh, for the needs of the church and for the requests that have been brought in and those requests that are called in all night long. But oh, what power is generated by those men in their prayer, in the times of prayer all night long. And I'd like to recommend to a lot of you fellows, get started, get involved. You know, when I go to the men's prayer meeting on Saturday night and I hear the men praying, I can tell you the men who are in the all-night prayer times, I'll tell you, they really learned to pray. And it's thrilling To have men of prayer within the body. But it's also thrilling to have so many women that also have banded together in prayer. The Monday morning prayer fellowship there and and the many prayer fellowships throughout the area where the ladies gather during the day in homes for time of prayer. And so we've got ladies praying all day and men praying all night. No wonder God is blessing Calvary Chapel in such a glorious way. And Jabez called upon the God of Israel. Now his prayer was really sort of for personal things. Oh Lord, bless me indeed. Enlarge my coast. Keep your hand on me. Keep me from evil that it would not grieve me. And uh, God answered his prayer, granted his request. You know, God wants to bless you. And to me, that's always exciting to realize that God wants to bless me. For as I look at myself, I say, how could God ever bless me? Now, he doesn't bless me because I'm so good, but because he's so good. And he just likes to bless people. I need the blessings. I like the blessings. I want the blessings. Oh Lord, bless me indeed. Enlarge my coast. I think that one of the problems that we all have is that of narrowness. We we always seem to want to define our borders. Draw our close circle. Oh God, enlarge my borders. You see, it's our church. Oh, but they're Baptist. You know, oh, they're Nazarenes. Oh, they're Presbyterian. And, you know, we we want to sort of exclude others. We've got this special exclusive fellowship, foolishness. We have no corner upon God at all. We used to sing, Jesus loves us all, one and all, you and me, everybody, one and all. And and the Lord is no respecter of persons. The Lord is no respecter of churches. God enlarge my borders. Help me to see beyond the narrow walls of denominationalism. I have found that the more spiritual a person becomes, the less denominational he becomes. And we quit talking about my church. And we start talking about his church. And we see it made up of Catholics and Presbyterians and Lutherans and Methodists. And the whole shebang, you might say. You know, all of us are part of his glorious church. And we see the purposes of God wrought in the many fellowships that have been created. One of the signs of cultism is is that of narrowness. And we are the only ones. We're exclusive. Everybody else is Babylon. Everybody else is wrong. We're the only ones that have the true truth. Everyone else has, well, how could you have a false truth? So uh, we are the truly true church. And, And this narrowness, sectarianism, it is carnal. Paul said, While some of you say, I'm of Cephas, well I'm of Paul, well I'm of Apollos. He said that's a mark of of spiritual immaturity. You're a babe in Christ. You haven't grown up. It's a mark of carnality. Are you not carnal? Do you not walk as men? As long as one is saying, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And it's a mark of spiritual immaturity. Oh God, enlarge my coast. Lord, enlarge the borders of my life. Let me see the whole kingdom of God. The whole body of Christ. And then, of course, keep your hand upon me. Oh, how important it is that God keeps his hand upon my life. David said, you have held me by my right hand. Lord, keep hold of my hand. I need You don't hold me up. For Lord, if you don't hold me up, I'll surely fall. And then finally, keep me from evil, lest it grieve me. Now, this is farsightedness, which we need more of. One of the problems of the world today is as Peter described, he said, you only see that which is close, you do not see that which is far off. And we only so many times look at an experience for the immediate benefits, but this is always, always the snare of Satan. Shortcut. You don't have to take God's way. You can have immediate fulfillment. And just about every enticement that Satan lays before you, the bait is immediate fulfillment. You don't have to go by way of the cross. You can have immediate fulfillment right now. Just turn aside from God's path. You see, it's over here. Here's where you're going to find it. And and he seeks to turn us aside from God's path. Oh, God, keep me from evil, lest it grieve me. Because the end of that path, when you turn aside from God's path, the end of that path is always grief. You may be all excited now. You may be breathless over the thrills and the anticipation of what this experience is going to bring to you. But, oh, six months down the line, the grief that you're going to go through. Oh, God, keep me from evil, lest it grieve me. Sometimes I think it would be valuable if all of you could sit in my office and just listen to the stories of grief. Because someone turned aside from God's path, seeking fulfillment. You couldn't talk to them at that time. David said, oh, you don't understand. This is different. This is something special. Yes, but God's word says, oh, but, uh, you know, this is an exception. How is it that we always think our cases are exceptional? The old Greek proverb was, The dice of the gods are loaded. By which they were saying, hey man, you can't go against God and win. Every time you try to go against God, you're going to lose. You're going to end up the loser. And so God keep me from evil, lest it be a grief unto me. God answered his prayer. Now we get back into names again. One name stands out. We, with verse 24, begin with the tribe of Simeon. And many of the names of those within the tribe of Simeon are given. And a certain number of the tribe of Simeon, 500 men, came down to the area of Edom. The land of Gidor, there was good pasture land there. And there they uh, set up on the east side of the great uh, African rift, the Dead Sea. And they found a good pasture for their flocks. They drove out the inhabitants of that land for it was good pasture land. And they dwelt there quietly and peaceably. Uh, They had driven out some of the descendants of Ham who had been there from the times of old. And uh, this was during the time that Hezekiah was king over Israel. And uh, they then went on down into Mount Seir and took a part of the area that was of the Edomites, killing the Amaleks that were there. And it says they are dwelling there to this day. Now, Uh, The tribe of Simeon was, of course, one of the ten tribes from the northern kingdom. And uh, it is interesting that a branch from Simeon went down and established there in the area of of Mount Seir. A rabbi recently sought to prove that uh, those tribes in Afghanistan that are presently Uh, fighting against the Russian invasion are actually related to the tribes of Israel. They are part of the 10 tribes of the Northern Kingdom. And he has done quite a scholarly job in research in proving that Israel is already fighting against Russia in Afghanistan. And many of these tribal people uh, that have since, of course, embraced uh, the Muslim religion uh, are actually descendants from uh, the ten tribes that were scattered at the time of the Assyrian invasion. Whether or not that is true, I do not know. But I do know that God knows where those people are and he's going to gather them together. And during the Great Tribulation, he is going to seal 10,000 from each tribe because he knows exactly who they are. Now in chapter 5 we get to the descendants of Reuben who lost his birthright. It was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. And so his genealogy is not reckoned after the birthright. Uh, That genealogy after the birthright, of course, uh, will come to Joseph. But Judah prevailed above his brothers and of him came the chief ruler or David but the birthright was Joseph. So even though the birthright was Joseph, the leadership was to come from Judah, and ultimately from Judah is to come Jesus Christ. Now in verse 9, we read concerning the tribe of Reuben that they went east and inhabited the entering of the wilderness from the river Euphrates because their cattle were multiplied in the land of Gilead. And so they went over to what is present day Iraq, as far as Iraq, and they dwelt in that area. And uh, so the tribe of Reuben, and then next to the tribe of Gad, these are the tribes that settled on the east bank of the Jordan River. And uh, then after them, the Half of tribe of Manasseh, and it gives the name of uh, names of some of those uh, from the half of tribe of Manasseh. Those all that dwelt on the other side. But in verse twenty-five, concerning the tribe of Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh, they transgressed against the God of their fathers, and they went a whoring after the gods of the people of the land, whom God destroyed before them. And the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Paul, the king of Assyria, and the spirit of Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, and he carried them away, even the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, and brought them unto Halah, unto Harbor, to Hara, to the river goes on unto this day. And so they were the first to fall, those tribes that settled on the east bank of the Jordan River. And the reason for their fall is their transgression against the God of their fathers, and they're beginning to worship other gods. Now in chapter 6, we now get to the tribe of Levi, from which was the priestly tribe. And the three sons which made the major families within the tribe of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And uh, of Kohath was born Amram, and from Amram was born Aaron and Moses and Miriam, their sister. And so Moses and Aaron both came from the family of Kohath in the tribe of Levi. And uh, then you follow... Uh, the the high priest line from Aaron, uh, his son Eliezer and so forth, you follow that line on down to the captivity uh, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar when he took them away Babylon from uh, verse 4 to 15. You have a direct line, a bunch of unpronounceable names. <laughs> and then he... he brings up Gershom in verse 17 and tells you some of his sons, and then again Kohath and some of his sons, and then Merari and some of his sons, your your basic uh, families. Now, as we get down into verse 31, uh, it is interesting in verse 28, Samuel, the prophet, uh, is listed uh, in his line, uh, the son of Elkanah. In verse thirty one, and these are they whom David set over the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark had rest. And they ministered before the dwelling place of the tabernacle of the congregation with singing until Solomon had built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and then they waited on their office according to their order, and these are they that waited with the children of the sons of the Kohathites and Heman the singer and so forth. Now David actually appointed these men and their job was just to stay in the the tabernacle and just sing unto the Lord. You know, sometimes we have uh, some of the ladies that come and practice the organ here in the church. And I love for there to be music here in the church. In fact, at one time we we sought to set up a tape you know, that we, we could just play music in the church. All that. I like it. I like it whenever you come in to just have uh, music of praise unto God. I think that's great. I just, uh, I, I think it's great that God gives people the talent to sing. Any of you want to rehearse or anything? Come on down to the church uh, and, and do your singing here. It's great. I love it. And you're welcome. Uh, anytime you want to just worship the Lord or, or sing, Uh, unto him just come on down you're free at any time to just come on in and just to worship the lord with singing they had hired musicians david appointed certain ones and they were just to be there singing all the time it would be great now i'm not much of one for choirs on sunday morning to sing their little ditty and and then that's it you know but I would be all for a choir that would you know, be here all day long or evening just singing praises and worshiping God. I think that would be outstanding. And uh, so David had appointed from uh, the tribe those that were to just spend their time worshiping the Lord in music. Now, another portion of the tribe... Uh, the descendants of merari their brothers were appointed to all of the manner of the service of the tabernacle of the house of God. So they were the janitors and uh, those that you know kept the uh, physical aspects of the thing in repair. But Aaron and his sons, they were the ones that made the offerings uh, unto the Lord. Uh, there at the altar, they burnt offerings and offered the incense and made the atonements and, and they were the ones that uh, did that portion of the service unto God. And of course, during the time of Moses, uh, problems arose because they said, hey Moses, you have take too much on yourself. You've appointed your brother, the other priests, the other descendants of, of Levi. They said, you've appointed your brother you know, to the task of, of going in before the Lord and we have as much right." Korah and his little crew, we have as much right as Aaron, you know. And so that's when Moses said, well, let's see if this thing be of God. Uh, you guys bring in your walking canes and uh, Aaron will bring his hin. We'll set them before the Lord tonight and, and see what happens. And so they set them in the tabernacle before the Lord and in the morning, Aaron's rod had budded and blossomed and had ripe almonds on it. And so he says, Well, it looks like God's trying to tell us something, but let's make sure. Korah, uh, you and your buddies stand out there in the field. Now, if this thing be of God, then let God do a new thing. Let the earth open up and swallow you guys alive. <laughs> and the earth opened up, and Korah and his whole rebellious crew went down into the pit, and the earth closed behind them. And they said, well, I guess it was of God. (laughs) No, it said, and a great fear came on all Israel. I'll bet it did. (laughs) Now, it goes on now and tells the cities that were given to the priest. The cities that were given to them in Judah. And uh, the cities that were given to them in the tribe of Manasseh and in the tribe of Ishkar and Reuben and Gad and Zebulun and Ephraim and all. And it names the cities that were given to the priest. Now, when we get to chapter 7, it moves now to Ishkar, the son of Jacob, one of the twelve tribes, the tribe of Ishkar. And it begins to uh, list some of those from the tribe of Escar Until you get to verse 6, and then we deal with the descendants of Benjamin. And in verse 13, the descendants of Naphtali. In verse 14, the descendants of Manasseh. Verse 20, of Ephraim. And uh, then more or less filling out the chapter with the... Uh, the areas that Ephraim inhabited. In chapter 8, we come back to the tribe of Benjamin. And uh, in the tribe of Benjamin, we come down to the family of Kish, from which, of course, Saul was born, who became the first king over Israel. Verse 33, Nur begat Kish, Kish begat Saul, Saul begat Jonathan. And so you have... uh, Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. You get to chapter 9 and it declares, So all of Israel was reckoned by the genealogies and behold they were written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah who were carried away to Babylon because of their transgression. Again, God declares that the reason for the fall was their transgressions carried away to Babylon. And uh, again, uh, we, we come back now to the priest and uh, the descendants of the priest and the Levites and so forth. And uh, in uh, verse 26, we are told that uh, a portion of them, the, for these Levites, the four chief porters, when their set office were over the chambers, the treasuries of the house of God, they lodged round about the house of God because the charge was upon them, and the opening every morning pertained unto them, and so it was their duty to just uh, live around it to protect it from vandals and so forth, and every morning to open it up and to uh, set things out, uh, set out all of the instruments, the vessels. Uh, for the worship, the fine flour, the wine, the oil, the frankincense, and all. And in verse 33, we get back to the singers. These are the singers, the chief of the fathers of the Levites, who remaining in the chambers were free, for they were employed in that work day and night. In other words, they were free from the other labors, in order that day and night, they may spend their whole time in just praising and worshiping the Lord. That would be quite an occupation, quite a job. Get paid for that. Just being around, worshiping God all the time, and getting paid for it. And uh, so then we jump to, uh, in verse 35, the family of uh, Saul again, uh, through uh, Jonathan, the descendants of Jonathan. And in chapter 10, uh, we have the story once more of Saul's death. How in fighting against the Philistines up near Mount Gilboa that Saul fell before the Philistines. He was uh, hit uh, with one of the arrows. An archer uh, shot him. He realized that it, he wasn't going to come out of it but he was still alive. He, Saul, was you remember, was a big guy. Hard to kill him. And uh, he knew that ultimately the wound from this arrow would get him. And so he pleaded with his armor bearer to thrust him through, to finish him off. But his armor bearer was fearful to do it. And so Saul fell upon his own spear. He set it out in front of him and fell upon it and died. And of course, when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his spear. Jonathan and his other brothers, the sons of Saul, were slain by uh, the Philistines clear up in the area of Mount Gilboa. The next day as the Philistines were coming around uh, stripping the bodies, they found the body of Saul and they cut off his head and uh, sent it through the land of the Philistines in order that they might rejoice over the fact that they had killed Saul, the king of Israel. And they put his uh, body into the, in the temple of Dagon, there in Beth Shemesh, uh, which is at the northern end of uh, the Mount Gilboa range, uh, where Gilboa comes down to a little stream. And uh, the men across the valley, across the Jordan River, about oh, five, 10 miles away, I guess, over in Jabesh Gilead, when they heard that Saul's body was pinned up there in the temple of the god Uh, with Jonathan, they came and they took the bodies and they took them back over on the other side of Jordan and there they cremated them. So in verse 13 we are told, Saul died for his transgression which he committed against the Lord, even against the word of the Lord which he kept not. And also for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it and inquired not of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord slew him, and he turned the kingdom unto David, the son of Jesse. So Saul died for his transgression, a fellow who had tremendous potential. I think that when God chose Saul, there was demonstrated in Saul fabulous potential as a king. He was humble, he came from a good family. He seemed to be a natural leader. He was courageous. But before long, after a few victories, the women started coming out when Saul would walk down the street and they would come out and they began begin to dance with their tambourines and they would sing, Saul has killed his thousands. And Saul began to accept this praise and adulation of the people. He began to expect it. And pride began to get hold of the guy's life. And, And this is the thing that destroyed him. That humility was gone. And now this arrogancy and pride, which led to the tremendous jealousy of David, trying to drive David out, and then his disobedience to the commandments of God. And finally, when God would not answer him, he went to the witch at Endor to inquire of her, and therefore God allowed him to be killed there on the Mount Gilboa. David became the king, and so in chapter 11, all of Israel gathered themselves to David in Hebron, and it tells the numbers of people that gathered Huge force of people from all of the tribes gathered to David hundreds of thousands actually gathered down in Hebron and uh, the mighty men men of war and so forth now they said to David behold we are your bone and flesh And moreover, in times past, even when Saul was king, you were the one that led us out and brought us in. And the Lord thy God said unto thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be ruler over my people. Now, the twofold commission of God to David. Number one, you shall feed my people, and you shall be ruler over them. David was called a man after God's own heart. Because David had the heart of a shepherd. And would to God that every leader over the people had the heart of a shepherd. He was a shepherd made king. But coming from that background, he made an ideal king. Because his interest was always in the sheep. And of course the primary need of the sheep is to be fed. Now, in the New Testament that thought is carried over. As Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. Later Peter wrote, feed the flock of God which is among you. Jeremiah, the Lord said, and in that day I will give them pastors who will feed them in the knowledge of God. And so the command of David to feed the sheep as you rule over the people. And, and how important it is for a pastor today to teach the people the knowledge of God, to feed the sheep. Therefore the elders came to Hebron, made a covenant with David before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel, according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. Now they they did it again. He had already been anointed earlier. And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem. And the inhabitants, the Jebusites who were in Jerusalem, said, You can't come in here. And David said, You just think I can't. And he took the castle of Zion And he said, whosoever smites the Jebusites first shall be the chief and the captain over the men. So Joab, his nephew, went up first, and he became the chief. And David dwelt in the castle, and they began to call then Jerusalem, uh, the south slopes, uh, the city of David. And David waxed greater and greater for the Lord of hosts was with him. The secret behind David's greatness, the Lord of hosts, was with him. Now we get a list of some of David's mighty men. And it's interesting, this first one that is listed is Jashubim, verse 11. And he was the chief of the captains. Now, in In the other records, nothing is spoken in, in kings of this guy Jobeim, and yet he was he was a pretty powerful guy because in one battle he lifted up his spear against three hundred men whom he killed. I mean he had three hundred to his credit in one battle, so he was not to be messed with now, after him, also one of the three mighties, of course Joab was the first, and then after uh, then eliezer was the third. He was one of the three mighties. And David was at uh, Pasdanim, and the Philistines were gathered together in battle. And there was a parcel of ground that was full of barley, and all of the people fled from before the Philistines. And David and this other fellow, Eliezer, stood in this field of barley while the Philistines attacked. And David and Eliezer defeated the Philistines. The Lord saved them by a great deliverance. David is a very interesting person. Uh, he he has a, I, I, Really, there's, there's much in David to be admired, and of course there's much to identify with. Because David was a man... And he was subject to uh, the same problems and temptations. And David wasn't a perfect man by any means. In fact, uh, because of some of the things that he did, he was rejected from building the temple unto God, though it was in his heart to do it. But yet he was admirable. And, and here the Philistines are attacking. Everybody flees. And David and Eliezer stand the ground there in the barley field and wipe out the Philistine t- attackers. And uh, so then it lists uh, some of the others of the great. Uh, David, it, it speaks of how that uh, they were uh, near the cave of Abdullam and the host of the Philistines were encamped in the valley of Riphaim. And David was with them there in this fortress. And the Philistines' garrison was then occupying Bethlehem. And David said, Oh boy, have I only had a drink of water from the well that's at the gate of Bethlehem. So three of David's buddies broke through the ranks of the Philistines and got him a pitcher of water from the well there at Bethlehem and they brought it back to David. And David said, Oh no, I can't believe it. And he took the water and he poured it out on the ground he said, I can't drink this. You guys hazarded your lives. You shed blood for this water. I'll I'll give it to God. I'll pour it out to the Lord. And so he poured the water out on the ground because uh, he he just felt unworthy uh, to drink that water. He felt that Uh, those guys that were willing to hazard their lives for something like that, better that that they give it to the Lord. So he poured it out to the Lord. Verse 18. God forbid it me that I should do this thing. Shall I drink the blood of these men that have put their lives in jeopardy? And for the jeopardy of their lives they brought it to me. Therefore he would not drink it. But these things did these three mightiest men. And Abishai, who was the brother of Joab, he was the chief of the three. For lifting up his spear against three hundred, he slew them and had his name among the three. So uh, yet he was uh, not, he did not attain to the first three. Uh, Benaniah, one of the second three, along with Abishai, had done many acts. He killed two lion-like men of Moab. Now, whatever that may be, probably hairy guys with bushy hair and beards. Also, he went down and slew a lion in a pit in a snowy day. And he slew an Egyptian uh, who was a giant, seven and a half feet tall, who had a spear that was like a weaver's beam. And he took, and with his spear, knocked the spear out of the guy's hand, and then he killed him. And so he became one of the uh, three, but not as mighty as the first three. And then the, the other 30 of the mighty men of David, he had 30 who were just really outstanding guys. And so their names come in for special mention.